0: Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 13. I'm Christina Suzama, Ma, and with me is our incredible medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. I'd
1: like to welcome everybody to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Walman and I will be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy each week exploring ways towards optimal health. How is your health, Christina?
0: Oh, quite dandy. (laughs) I have to say good all the time. Is it it optimal? Hmm. I mean, that's very hard to say, Glenn, because optimal to me is like, is like uh, when I'm in meditation and uh, everything is still. So (laughs) is that on a daily basis? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) How about for you?
1: Uh, I think I would answer it somewhat similar. I always try to be in optimal health. I know that it's my goal at all times. And I check myself as part of a ritual each morning, actually, to uh, I scan myself to see what level I am closest Mm. on the scale of optimal health. So it varies.
0: And I'm assuming optimal health is at 10. Yes. Ooh, I'd love to see your chart that you grade yourself with every morning. <laughs> I would keep a graph of it. <laughs>
1: it's uh it's just in my uh visual meditation.
0: Oh, wonderful. So
1: so it's somewhere in a, a me cloud.
0: A me cloud. Oh, I like that. Well, right. we'll have to connect our me clouds into the iCloud. And then <laughs> we'll be doing all great.
1: <laughs> I think so. Uh yes. I'm very happy today, by the way, to introduce you to a friend of mine and a mm-hmm. colleague, uh, and we're going to have what I consider a very interesting show today, I'm hoping, uh, but I really know that it will be because I've spoken with him many times. We've had many discussions. This is uh, Dan Diamond. He's a student and a teacher of Oriental uh, medicine, and I would like to stop calling it oriental medicine. I think I'd rather call it traditional Asian medicine, Mm -hmm. but I think that at the time that the degree that he got, it was probably called oriental medicine. So I'm honoring that part of it. He's received his master's and is a doctor of oriental medicine. He was the dean of the, uh, College of Oriental Medicine in Santa Barbara, where I was one of his teachers, and he had to deal with all the students complaining about me at at times, but uh, he remained friends with me and kept me working there. Uh, He's also one of my healers and one of my teachers, so I would like to introduce you to Dr. Dan Diamond. Welcome, Dan.
0: Thank you very much, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello. We're honored to have you on our show, Dr. Diamond. Thank you, Christina.
1: Dan, as the medical guide, I usually tell our viewers uh, the path that I plan on taking, although it's never always the perfect path and we can vary it. But with you, I would like to find out what got you interested in uh, going into a healing art and then specifically into traditional Asian medicine and where you went as as far as being a professor, a dean, etc., where you are today. Then I want to get into acupuncture. I want to find out about its history, Mm -hmm. how it, not just acupuncture, but traditional Asian medicine and all of the aspects that go with that. And I want to spend some time on the philosophy and also traditions along with the exact parts of what are being used in uh, traditional Asian medicine today. And if we have some time, we'll get into some of the aspects of comparing it and treating along with Western and other forms of healing arts. How does that sound to you, Dan?
2: Sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I hope
1: it is. Uh, I'm, I, well, based on many of our discussions, I know it will be. So let's start with just uh, a simple story of uh, the Diamond Sutra.
2: I will do that. Before I do, can I share one thing about optimal health, which you and Christine were discussing earlier? I believe that optimum health is very elusive, and we just go in and out of it, and we never stay there. And you just need to pay attention which direction you're going to try to find it again. Mm. So anyway, uh, my my path into this field began, uh, I guess, Previous to my studying this medicine, I was a high school teacher and a musician and a songwriter. And I knew it was time for a change in my life for many reasons. What I knew about, I'd never had a treatment. This was the late 70s when I was making this decision. I've been practicing for 30 years now. And I knew that oriental medicine was both sort of a science and an art and a philosophy mixed up, mixed together. That just sort of appealed to me and what I know of my personality in the aspect of right and left brain, something practical Mm -hmm. and concrete and something intuitive and philosophical. My approach to music is even that way. When I write a song, I think I'm kind of a left brain artist. Sometimes I'm too bound by structure, but I still allow for the art. And so I uh, just needed a change in my life and decided I would drop everything and, Go to study at that time, it was just called acupuncture, even it wasn't even called oriental medicine because we weren't studying herbs. And uh, let's see, uh, is that enough for now or shall I continue on this chat?
1: Not enough for me,
0: okay? <laughs> no, <Don't> go on.
2: <laughs> so, it was about five months into my education that I finally had my first treatment, felt an acupuncture needle and the unusual sensations that it created. I was fascinated with the study of it. And uh that, that's what brought me there. I also know that in my past as a school teacher that good medicine involves teaching. And it's never a one-way street where a doctor does something to a patient and then that does it. There has to be responsibility from the patient and lessons from the doctor. Doctor's a curious word too. When you look up the meaning in a dictionary, it means to change or modify something, to doctor it up. That could be taken both positively and negatively, depending on how you're looking at it. And so I I saw that as an ability to use whatever skills I had one-on-one, not with a classroom of high school kids that were asleep or junior high kids throwing things around the room, but with a motivated individual adult who hopefully would listen to some suggestions in addition to receiving treatment on how they can make changes in their life to improve their health.
1: So then you, you started practicing, and how, how did you become the dean of the college?
2: When I, I came back to – I went to Los Angeles to study acupuncture, and then Oriental Medicine later, we added herbs. When I got my license, I moved back to Santa Barbara where I had lived before, and the school here was just starting, and there was a paucity of teachers that could teach in the area. I was very green in terms of my clinical experience, but I had a lot of experience in the classroom. And I got to say, I had some teachers that were incredible clinicians that were horrible teachers. So here I had the opportunity to be hopefully a good teacher, even though I didn't have a lot of clinical experience. So initially I taught just simple point location classes and basic level theory classes. As I got more clinical practice under my belt in my private practice, I then began supervising in the clinic, teaching more advanced classes And as the school started growing more, as we got uh, accredited for federal loans for the students, we we needed to be more formalized, and I was the likely choice to be dean. So I kind of grew into that experience without having any administrative training. To be a good administrator, what I learned primarily was do not act right away. Get all the information, wait, and then maybe make a decision. So that's what got me to be the dean. I was there, and I was the likely choice.
1: When you uh, became the dean, part of the responsibility then changed in a way. Up until that point, you were learning for yourself, and you were treating people. But now, suddenly, you were training uh, new people that were going to be going out into the world and doing and practicing the healing art and science of uh, traditional Asian medicine, How did you feel? Did you feel any different? Did that change your perspective in any way?
2: I need to elaborate for a second on that because when I was teaching prior to being dean, that's when I was training people. The job responsibility of dean was totally different. I had to deal with conflict resolution, planning curriculum, master's projects, hiring and firing teachers. It wasn't about training acupuncturists or training doctors or training traditional Asian medicine specialists. It was about managing a school. And uh, I found my, my most enjoyable experiences at the college we're not necessarily in the classroom, but they were supervising in the college clinic, the intern clinic. Students in their third and fourth year saw patients and got to apply their knowledge. Patient would come in, I would sit on the side, listen while the student interviewed the patient, try to decide how much to jump in, how much not to jump in. The student would come out of the room, we would discuss the case, I would suggest a treatment, go back in, check what was going on. It was, uh, I lo- that was my favorite experience there.
1: Nice. When we start talking about acupuncture and traditional Asian medicine, there are many people that view this show, the community, that have some knowledge of that, but there are others that don't have uh, a lot of knowledge, if any, and I would like to start maybe from the very beginnings when, and I don't know if that goes to the Yellow Emperor or even before that, maybe you can help us on a historical viewpoint of acupuncture uh, so that we could take it up to the present day and before Certainly. we get into specifics of actual acupuncture.
2: The history is very interesting and also somewhat unknown because a lot of it wasn't recorded. The Yellow Emperor, the Huang Ti Nei Qing, the first major text was about 2,000 years ago during the Yellow Emperor's reign. And that was the first text that accumulated a larger body of knowledge Prior to that, probably for 3,000 years, that's going back a total of 5,000 years, different aspects of the medicine were developed in different parts of China. And the people didn't travel from one part of China to another. They Everything stayed where they were, and the knowledge wasn't shared for that one reason because there was no communication and also because the knowledge that a doctor had usually went to – it's probably patriarchal to his son and his son's mm-hmm. son – and they didn't want to share it with anybody else either, for their for ego reasons. So things like moxibustion or heating treatments were from the north of China. Scraping lightly, bleeding the skin, doing the surface of the skin was on the coast of China. The southern part of China had uh, more the beginnings of acupuncture. A central part of China was more herbal medicine, and it took quite a while for these things to be put together. The original acupuncture needles were made of stone, and they weren't for inserting and leaving in the body. They were for draining a few drops of blood out of key points. Not like the bleeding therapy from medieval times, where the body would be drained of large quantities of blood. It was believed that draining a little bit of blood out of a very specific point could remove an excess or a pathogen from a certain system, if you know the meridian and the channel
1: system. Okay, so let's... (laughs) Excuse what, me. what I want to know is from when they started talking about it, and my interpretation or my understanding is that the the classical uh, treatment in the time of the Yellow Emperor was uh, almost a story of conversations that the emperor had with his chief doctor it's, and other doctors, right. and they were all recorded.
2: Right. Chirpo was the court physician, and, that, and they were discussions with his court physician, correct?
1: And these discussions went on over periods of time, and they, and they took notes, and it became the classical uh, treatise, right?
2: That's right. It became the initial classical treatise. Mm-hmm. But from there, various scholars over the next few thousand years would then also discuss other ways of looking at the body using the same energetic model. I'm sure that they peeked at cadavers because of curiosity, but there was nothing really to be learned about treatment from a cadaver because a cadaver did not have chi. There was no life force energy, but something was to be learned, of course, and, and anatomy.
1: That's the perfect segue uh, right now. Okay, no, I'll stop. <laughs> no, I want to, uh, w- we hear the word chi as mm-hmm. part of traditional Asian medicine all the time. And in martial arts, we hear that. Uh, many other cultures have other versions of that. There's the ha, or the breath in Hawaii. There's the prana. There are other uh, civilizations that had uh, some kind of humors flowing. Even Hippocrates and Asclepius, as uh, Robbie uh, Bosnak pointed out in one of our prior talks on sleep, uh, even Hippocrates looked at humors that were flowing through the body. So I want to know your your knowledge of where did they first see the chi who who picked that up and started thinking about it and how did that come to be a process
2: probably qigong masters and martial artists who could feel it circulating in their body i don't I, nobody really knows th- th- that information it's a great question I, one of my patients yesterday asked me uh, well who figured out where to put needles and I can't I can't answer I can't answer that question. Um, so the concept of qi as a life qi and blood are two form life force energy. Qi is a yang force and blood is a yin force. And uh, but you you look at the ideogram with the Chinese character for qi, and it is a a combination of the outer part of the Chinese character means air or vapor or something you can't grasp, and the inner part of the radical or the ideogram is a bundle of rice, which states that qi is somehow a life force energy derived from the air we breathe and the food we eat. And blood is even a form of qi. It's just a yin form of qi, and there are those who believe that blood is an important aspect of treating with needles too, the movement of blood. The meridian system where chi is allegedly flowing, does not follow the course of either the nervous system, the circulatory system, or the lymphatic system, but kind of flows through a combination of all of those systems as we know them and makes connections all over the body.
1: I was going to ask you how they found out where the needles were, but you already answered <laughs> that you're not going to yeah. answer that question. So maybe
2: maybe a battle wound injury. Somebody got stabbed, and they felt something go down to their toe from the side of their leg, and <laughs> meridians were mapped out that way. You know, I I really don't know. I'm sure that masters could meditate deeply and feel chi flow in their body.
1: Well, you know, you and I have had discussions about this before, where I think. That I've always expressed that Qi might be the ATP in our cells, uh, yes. which is the molecule of energy, and I, I don't think that you ever totally agreed with me. So I have another way of putting it this mm-hmm. time. I'm yes. going to I'm going to suggest that ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is in every cell and every body, and is the necessary energy form that allows us to do everything. Without ATP. We would be nothing. Mm -hmm. So ATP, like chi, comes from genetics. Mm -hmm. It comes from the air, the breath. Both do. It comes from food, right? Uh,
2: Correct, yes.
1: Uh, Where else does it come from? Genetics, air, food.
2: Where does ATP come from?
1: Oh, uh, Where does the qi come from?
2: Okay. okay. So uh, to me, a key difference between adenosine triphosphate and qi is that qi is a very loaded word and can be used many ways. Mm. For instance, the qi of something, the qi of the tai yin of leg or spleen, poorly translated system, involves the functions of that system. That would be turning our food into uh, energy and waste. It would be nourishing mm-hmm. muscles. It would be uh, preventing the brain from overthinking and overcogitating. Or so the chi of something is one aspect of chi. There is in there is what's called yuan chi, which is our genetic source chi. There is jing chi, which is loosely related to that, but we can maintain and increase that if we eat well, live well, meditate well, and exercise well. There is nutritive qi, yin qi, which is more of the blood. There is wei qi, which is an external qi like our defense system that protects us from the outside. So there's so many aspects of qi to affect everywhere from the inside and outside of the body. I think one of the key differences is that ATP is um, taking us down to the smallest possible part of qi. Hmm. which is what Western science likes to do often. Rather than look at at a holistic or a total picture, we specialize and get smaller and smaller and find the one bacteria that's doing it and the one antibiotic that hits that bacteria. So that, to me, is a key difference um, between ATP and Qi, if that made sense.
1: Yeah, It does, except now I have to. (laughs) Now I'm going to give you my new theory. uh...
2: (laughs) Please, I'd love to hear it.
1: I now want to express the possibility that ATP is the physical embodiment of the chi, of the higher energetic chi.
2: Hmm. Okay, uh, of yeah, of that type of chi, I believe it is. Hmm. But I, I can't. I, well, I guess I'm just saying I don't think the words are synonymous. But ATP okay. is probably the closest thing we can get to. Can I, I, can I briefly elaborate on something I said before, and it's making me think of this? I mentioned about Western science going to the smallest possible thing quite often. Mm-hmm. Or, well, that happens, that happens throughout history, too, and it didn't happen. To continue the history of Chinese medicine, we went through the six divisions of how disease progressed through the body and which herb does that cold diseases turn hot in the body if they're not treated. And then it went to the four stages, Wei, Qi, Ying, and Shui, which is heat. But every time, and then there was the, the, uh, the Sanjiao, the three heaters. Every time somebody put a new overlay or a new way of looking and treating, it never negated what came before it. It just accumulated and added to the body of knowledge. But when one looks at the growth of Western science in this Western civilized world, we go through herbal medicine to homeopathy to antibiotics, when something new happens, what happened before tends to no longer be applicable. A new drug comes out, doctors are given free samples of the new drug, the previous drug, which might be just as well, because the new drug never had to be tested against the old drug, just against placebo, is no longer of of use.
1: That's very interesting to point that out. I, I guess I would partly have to defend the Western part, although I don't want to. (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know, it, deserve, it deserves defense. Without Western medicine, many people would oh, have clearly. died; or would otherwise be living.
1: <laughs> clearly, and and I think if if you look at uh, the yin and the yang, and the and the and the uh, the symbol of the Tao, within each part of it, the other part is in the center. So you've got the big picture, and you've got the small part. So right. I think personally that that's why both of these need to be. Uh, looked at together, especially the philosophies. And we're going to get into uh, a lot more of the uh, of the Western or the traditional applications of healing, but I still want to stay in uh, theory for a while and talk about uh, meridians. Let's talk about meridians for a few moments. Give us a little bit more of the meridian concept.
2: Everybody has seen the little plastic or wooden – most everybody has seen the little plastic or wooden models of the acupuncture man or woman that has these lines and dots all over their back, arms, and legs. Those tend to – those represent the 12 primary meridians. Mm -hmm. These meridians cannot be dissected out and cannot be seen, but they can be measured. And it's curious when you use a resistance meter – that meter will ring out when you come to where an acupuncture point is because there is less resistance at the skin and the energy from below can be read by this machine. The meridian system, of these 12 main meridians, most people have, a, I think, an incomplete view of how they connect. They see one line starting at the eye going down to the little toe, another line from the big toe going up the inside of the leg into the abdomen. <coughs> Excuse me a moment. <laughs> These lines do not start and stop. All 12 lines are connected. The end of one leads to the beginning of the next. They're called entry and exit points. So an example would be, and everyone has two hours of the day where they're at their strongest and weakest. So for instance, 3 to 5 a.m. is tie-in, misnamed lung system. And that starts at your thumb, uh, flows Oh, excuse me. It starts in the chest area, flows through the lungs, out your arm, and out your thumb. But it doesn't stop there. Right between your thumb and index finger, a small branch connects it to the index finger for the next one, which is yang-ming, or large intestine, that then comes up your arm towards your nose, doesn't stop at your nose. a pass there goes up to your eye, where the stomach channel, or a yang-ming of leg, starts, flows down from your eye, through your abdomen, across the stomach, and down to your second toe, and then, etc. So all 12 of them continue in one large cycle.
0: They,
2: they do not start and stop.
0: Uh, forgive me but you're saying that it can actually there's a meter that will actually read that oh, on the skin oh, surface Oh, yes,
2: they're very inexpensive. They ring out a needle will move and a tone will happen or a light will light up when it comes over an acupuncture point. Wow. It's it's a it's simply a resistance meter and for whatever reason there is less resistance at the surface of the skin where an active acupuncture point is underneath it and the meter finds that.
0: The, are these new meters or have they been around for a long time?
2: Been around probably for 20, 25 years. Well, mar- resistant meters have been around longer than that, but people have been applying them this way for 20 to 25 years. Oh Acupuncture point finders, they're called. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, how I and that you really can't find a point with them, it will give you a vicinity. The true finding of a point involves intuition and sensitivity, knowing human anatomy, integrate. In, integrally mm-hmm. knowing the meridian flow and feeling lightly with your hand where you sense where the point is but the machine will definitely give you a spot to look
0: for wow i i mean it just reminds me of those meters that you run along the wall to find those main beams. Find, you know
2: uh, yeah. well those are i believe looking for the metal in the nail but
0: it's the <laughs> right, same idea that's amazing <laughs>
2: Patients really like it too. It give, for those who are non-believers, it definitely gives them something to grasp onto.
0: Wow! <laughs> well, I like that, huh? I do like that. I'd, <laughs> I'd never. I mean, you know, being having acupuncture done most of my life, and and uh, you know, all different sizes of needles, etc., with all the electric currents and everything. I had never heard of a meter that read that on the on the <laughs> surface of the skin, and I'm like. Well,
2: the machine that your acupuncturist used to put electric current onto the needles probably has a built-in point finder next time you're there ask
0: to check it out wow that would be so cool i a will lot
2: of, a lot of the machines have uh, point finding as well as treating with electricity functions
0: wow that is amazing that's amazing and uh, it's it's just amazing how they've been able to track As you say, how one point connects to the next and then kind of circles back into the body. Yep,
2: that's right. All the the pathways are connected. There's a system in Japan called Ryuduraku which measures this relative strength or deficiency of meridians at your fingertips or toes where they all flow in and out of. And uh, many times people have too much juice or energy in one channel and not enough in another. And this machine will tell you which channels are too full and which channels are too low. It's much more sophisticated than the simple resistance meter. The Japanese tend to go for electronic Mm -hmm. sophistication.
0: Yeah, they're amazing. They are amazing. Yes. I've never seen anyone use these meters before. Is it common that people do? Well, I'm just trying to think. A lot of times when you're having a treatment, you might be lying down, but a lot of the Chinese tend to treat if you're sitting up so yeah partly
2: that is because the chinese don't necessarily do one-on-one uh intimate treatments mm-hmm. they often would treat in group in a room people sit down in and you know so you can accomplish a lot more in a little less space with in a little bit of time
0: and it's the group you, therapy <laughs> well,
2: you can you can do a lot you can do a lot more lying down but I treat some people sitting up in a chair just because of comfort level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If they have severe vertigo and they don't want to lie down, or for whatever reason, you know.
0: Oh, that's magnificent! All the, well, I have to I have to come check that out. I'm going to come to your office and check that out. Sure,
1: <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Let's talk about needles for a few minutes. Uh, I want to get into the concept of after they figured there was chi, and after they figured there were meridians, how they came up with the idea to put needles in. But I also want to put that into the perspective, the same as you brought up earlier about uh, different cultures use different needles. And I was at an acupuncture, traditional Asian medicine lecture once where the speaker was comparing uh, the types of needles that were used in each culture with the culinary uh, way that they presented their food. Uh, the Chinese had a type of needle that fit with the big bowl with lots of vegetables and noodles in it. The French had something that had delicate things and the needle, the Japanese was very delicate with a slight presentation. Anyway, what's your, what's your thoughts on all of that? (laughs) Yeah,
2: uh, it's very, it's very cultural. The type of the, well, originally the first needles after the Stone Needles, during the metal Age, which was in the south of China, they had what's called the Nine Needles. It's a classic thing. You can see pictures of them in all the text. Of those nine needles, only two of them actually broke the skin, and one of them was for letting a few drops of blood out, and the mm-hmm. other was for a filiform needle for inserting and leaving in. The other seven needles were all things for scraping the skin or tapping the skin or irritating the surface of the skin. Mm-hmm. So, But from there, the different Asian cultures developed different methods of the way they thought was the correct way to treat Um, Japanese tend to use a thinner needle, they now coat them with silicone, and many of the Japanese doctors that I studied with felt that the chi or dachi, which is a sensation a patient might feel in acupuncture, the patient doesn't necessarily have to feel it the doctor will feel it with his very sensitive fingers while touching the needle, that the chi has arrived at the needle. Whereas the Chinese will put the needle in and manipulate it and move it until a distending or sensation runs up and down the channel. The Koreans tend to use a thicker needle and also go for stronger stimulation. The Koreans have devised a separate hand microsystem where you treat the entire body on the hand. The French have devised an auricular or an ear system
0: which the Chinese
2: then ran with. The French did it first, though, the elaborate ear system called auricular acupuncture. It was Paul Nogier in 1957 who did that. And immediately after that, the Chinese sent the Nanjing Medical Army, hey, what is this French guy doing with ear acupuncture? You better study it also. And so they did their own treaties on it the next year. And... uh, so there, there are even where to put the needles and how many needles to use in a treatment besides how strong the stimulation is it all varies very much by by culture and by style and study there's a five element school of acupuncture which is more akin to homeopathy it's very very different and uh, there's only the five element acupuncture was brought to the west by j r Worsley, a british doctor who had who went to china many many years ago right after the cultural revolution when no one was allowed to practice five element acupuncture because yeah. it was too spiritual and they had to hide in back rooms and he had to make his way into these back rooms get accepted to learn it which he did and he brought it to the west and started his school in england there's now another five element school in maryland but if you learn five-element acupuncture, you can't get a license in this country because you wouldn't be able to pass any exams because the primary thing that's tested here is called eight-principle acupuncture. Fundamental opposites, hot, cold, yin-yang, excess, excess or deficiency, interior or exterior. Those are the eight opposite mm-hmm. principles. And that actually grew from herbal medicine but became applied to acupuncture treatment. In that, I'm going to go a little bit more. I know I'm confusing everybody. In that system, each point has a function based on either its location or the channel it's on and the function of that channel. Mm-hmm. In five-element acupuncture, it's all based on the – element's a bad word. Force is a better word because the five elements are fire, earth, water, metal or air, and, and uh, wood. Mm-hmm. And – uh, metal, they call it metal, but it really confirms, conforms to air. There's two organs attached to each element and there's, there's primary points that are attached to each element. And what a five-element acupuncturist would do its so subtle. I learned my five-element acupuncture from my students at the college when I was a supervisor who studied it but couldn't get licensed, so they came to our school <laughs> to learn eight-principal acupuncture. And in the clinic they had a patient they wanted to use five elements on. I said, be my guest. And I I sat in the room and learned from them. They would sniff the nape of their neck to get a particular odor from the person, listen to the tone of their voice. Do they have a sing-songy or a groaning or a whiny tone? They'd uh, listen to the type of words they would say. It was all very philosophical, intuitive, and subtle. They would figure out the key element or force that was out, and then they would do feel the pulses, confirm that, do one needle wait, take the pulses again, and that might be the entire treatment. Hmm. If, if not, do one more needle, take it out, take the pulses again. It's a very, very different treatment. And unless you've studied the Worsley School of Five Element Acupuncture, you don't know how to do it to that subtlety.
1: What I want to ask you about the five elements, and you spoke about each element has organ systems related to it. I'd like you to get into that because – that was one of the one areas in, in traditional Asian medicine that seemed to help me a lot. For example, I would see somebody with intestinal problems, and they were somehow related to lung problems, and they were somehow related all to emotional issues. So could you, could you talk I'd to us about to. that? I'd love to. I know that's, that.
2: That's, that's my Maya. The lung and large intestine is my Maya, and so when something goes off, it goes off in one of those systems. So uh, for the – and lung – but I have to once again state that using the term lung and large intestine is a bad translation for hand tie-in and foot yang-ming because we're not just talking about that anatomical organ that we visualize in English. We're talking about a whole system that means much more, and that's what the five forces or five elements speak of. The metal element or air includes the lung and large intestine. The lung system involves being affected by grief. It involves, of course, being able to breathe clearly. It involves the skin because the skin touches the air as well. Mm. The large intestine that's paired with it is the yang or hollow organ, which is just supposed to move things through the body. The hollow organs are not as energetically as important as the solid organ like the lung is. The next element over as we go in the cycle would be metal will we'll go this direction, would be water, which includes the kidney and the urinary bladder. The kidney is affected by fear. And it, of course, controls the kidneys and urination. It also controls the joints and the bones and is the housing for our source energy. A fetus is indeed shaped like a kidney. That's paired with the bladder. Once again, that's a hollow organ. The bladder is basically to store urine and get rid of it. The next one along the way is the wood element, which includes the liver and the gallbladder system. The liver includes anger, repressed anger, unexpressed anger, overexpressed anger. And the gallbladder includes decision making, and so it's kind of curious. One of them makes the decision; one has to carry out the decision. Chinese we we use we use these terms in English all the time. Someone learns something by heart. Someone has a lot of gall. Well, having a, a Chinese say, if someone were to go stand in the road and a bus were coming by and they barely lean out of the way at the last second and the bus barely misses them, they say he has big gallbladder. <laughs> So, I mean, these kind of phrases are part of our terminology. So so the liver, as I said, was anger, and it involves the processing of fats in the body. It involves the, the – not the muscles. The spleen does the muscles. The liver does the tendon where it attaches. So people who get cramping and spasms and shortening of tendons are more – have more liver issues. Mm-hmm. Next one along the way is the heart and small intestine. The heart of course is a solid organ, the emperor of organs, and it involves the it's the seat of the emotions, the seed of the spirit, and it involves of course blood flow through the body. Yeah. The small intestine merely is to move through food through. Um, and uh, the last one is the earth, which is spleen and stomach. Those are both involved in digestive processes. The spleen involves overthinking. I talked about it earlier, transforming food into energy and waste. The stomach is a holding organ that moves things through. So I just say the foo or hollow organs are not considered as energetic or clinically important as the... Yeah, as the. Uh, the zong or solid organs. One last thing and then I'll get back to you, Glenn. The gallbladder is in a special category. It's neither a hollow or a solid organ. It is, it is called a curious or extraordinary organ, of which there are five. And the gallbladder is curious because it is both a solid organ. It stores bile. But bile is a precious fluid. It's not immediately gone out to waste. It's used by the body to process fat. The other extraordinary organs include the blood vessels and the uterus and the bone. Anyway, so does that explain what you were looking
1: for? I think uh, (laughs) I could go on listening to you explain it (laughs) uh, even past what I'm looking for. Okay, but I understand
0: we have to sort of stop and go here. Oh my goodness. I mean this is uh I I feel like I'm a student in class right now. It's it's magnificent. Well, I, I,
2: I didn't want to do it that way too intensely, but sometimes I can't stop myself.
0: Oh no, it, it's brilliant. It's actually oh, brilliant oh, because there's such clarity that you've given And and the funny part about it is when you're when you're um talking about some of these Chinese terms, I know those terms, <laughs> and I've never quite pieced it together like the way you pieced it together and linked it all together for me. That's why I was like, a, that's a good laugh. I like that. <laughs> you,
2: you know, that means I'm sort of pronouncing them correctly. I do not know how to sing the vowels in Chinese, and I go into an herb shop, and I ask for Liue Wei Di Wan, and the guy looks at me like I'm speaking Greek. And Pointed to them on the shelf because I just I don't get the singing of the vowels. I I admire so much the Chinese language, how you can get so much out of the same sound by singing it differently.
0: Right. Well, you know, and then there's a difference between the Cantonese and the Mandarin, right? The different Uh, tones, right? It's like oh yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) That's Yiddish. That's my language.
0: But that's that's so amazing. Uh, um, I I I can't fathom how many years it took you to just intake all this information and be able to be so clear and concise with all of it it, it it's like uh, i've heard a lot some of this before but not as clear and concise as you've put it out today it's amazing dan <laughs> you've I,
2: done. I, I, well, it's, it's the I, years of doing it and the teaching that helped there's no better way of learning something than to teach it and mm-hmm. i often tell my students when they were studying so I'm, I'm before this life i was a musician and an actor you know and it's to study something you need to get off book, is what actors call it, when they no longer have to read the script. And the way you get off book is to practice something aloud. And I often tell students, to, you cannot study quietly. You have to study aloud, and it really helps with the learning if you're reading it and hearing it and speaking it at the same time. Oh, absolutely. That's
0: amazing. Now, with, um, uh, with the sort of uh, background that you have, if someone were to come and... Uh, Begin just fresh, like you did, how long would you say that it would take them to actually be very proficient in the art of acupuncture? And the, the reason why I'm asking this is like we had a um, doctor a, a homeopathic doctor on our program last month, and Ooh, she yeah. was saying that, you know, basically you would want to go see a, a homeopath when they've come to about their 10th year of, of practice. So, you know, before they're actually really truly beginning (laughs) to understand the art of, you know, homeopathic. So, so what would you say that would be in acupuncture or oriental medicine?
2: Classical homeopathy is a world unto itself. And I I totally understand what that person is saying. You have to spend hours and hours and hours with somebody if you want to give them a constitutional remedy. Mm. But there's also acute remedies, 3X, 6X, 12X potencies for homeopathy used for acute problems. And somebody who's just starting out can do that very effectively. Mm. It's the same with acupuncture. The schooling is probably four years now. The profession is in a bit of turmoil discussing whether we want to go to an entry-level doctorate or continue at a master's program with an optional doctorate, which is what it is now. Currently, it's at about four years of schooling with some pre-med, some anatomy, physiology, that stuff. After that, you're ready ready to treat, and you get your clinical experience with this from the seat of your pants. You, of course, with more complicated cases with chronic patients who have seen everybody – that will take longer, mm. but there are people who have simple situations, you know somebody sprains their ankle, somebody has simple hip arthritis without any major other conditions you're perfectly fine treating that with not much experience, mm-hmm. so it it it's it's the same as homeopathy. You can start right away, but as you spend time with it, you get to deal with more complicated
1: things more effectively
2: mm-hmm. wow. Look, and that's the same, some... same with all of medicine, I guess Glenn would have to agree to that. Mm-hmm. Would
1: agree to that. We always talked about uh, in our training. It was always the mantra: see one, do one, teach one.
0: Yes. Ah, that's that's wonderful.
1: Yeah, uh, and I've and I've kept that mantra in almost everything I do that requires real learning. I, mm-hmm. It's always a see one, do one, teach one. When I'm working with some of the people that I work with, after I teach them how to do it, I then have them teach it back to me again. So to make sure that they really understand it, because then you have to question it. Mm
2: -hmm. So I want to
1: talk now, Dan, I want to get into a little more focus of what happens here. We've talked about the chi. We've talked about needles. We've talked about meridians. I know in medicine, uh, one of the things that we do when we examine our patients is we take a tongue blade and we put it over the tongue, and then we look at the rest of the mouth and then go on to our exam.
2: <laughs> and there's no tongue under that blade. That's right.
1: And, and the tongue diagnosis is one of the probably two or three most important part of your diagnosis. So how do you put together the concept of the tongue diagnosis and then the pulse? When I take a pulse, I look to see is it strong, regular, rapid, uh, weak, thready, things like that. But you have slippery frog pulses. Mm-hmm. So we how do you how do you learn choppy that? Choppy and process?
2: slippery, and uh, right. And there's a lot of uh, variation. So okay. So talk about diagnosis for a moment. Um, we say there are four primary diagnostic techniques: asking. That's of course asking questions and getting answers. And with this medicine, it also is. Not only getting the answer, but listening to how they say the answer. And you know, Glenn, also in diagnostics, it's such a fine line of letting them speak and also trying to keep it on track. When do, you, when, do, when do you stop them and ask another question, and when do you let them go? And it depends on many factors. So asking is one of them. The tongue is one of them. The pulse is one of them. The fourth one is actually two together because it's the same Chinese character for listening and smelling. It's the same word. And so um, listening, meaning listening to the tone of their voice, listening to any cough they might have. (coughs) Excuse me, I need some water soon. So the tongue diagnosis, we look at the color of the tongue, the shape of the tongue, the moisture on the tongue, the coating on the tongue, and the topography of the tongue. And it tells us many things. Usually, the coating on the tongue tells us about what are called pathogenic factors, cold, damp, heat, how much of that is trapped in the body, depending on the thickness and the color and the moisture. The body of the tongue is more a reflection of the Zong organs, whether it's bright red or pale. The thickness speaks of many things. Whether there's uh, The five elements are even portrayed mm-hmm. on regions of the tongue the body upside down. The tip of the tongue is the heart. The center of the tongue is the spleen and stomach. The rear of the tongue is the kidney. The sides of the tongue are the liver and gallbladder. And you see anomalies there. It can tell you something. It can also tell you a region of the body. Somebody may have a weird blue spot on their tongue near the tip of their tongue and maybe they were head injured 15 years ago and it manifested there as a reflection of something on the head because purple or blue speaks of stagnancy or trauma. A lot of red at the tip of the tongue Red means heat, or red with thorns or petechiae. The tip of the tongue means the heart. A lot of red dots at the tip of the tongue, if I saw that without saying anything or asking anything, I would ask the patient if they tended to have anxiety or insomnia. Mm-hmm. And more than not, I'm right. And that, if nothing else will give a patient faith in you is if you tell them something about themselves that they haven't shared with you. Mm-hmm. Good point. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the tongue. The pulse we read in three different locations on each wrist, the radial artery. I'll hold up a hand here. One, two, three, either side of this styloid process. We feel them both superficial and deep and on both hands. It's different on both hands, and each represent one of the organs in the body. That's a five-element pulse reading. In an eight-principle pulse reading, you do read for different ones, whether it's upper, middle, or lower. Upper. Upper middle, lower. You also read for how superficial the pulse is. If it's only at the very surface and when you push on it, it disappears. Or if you have to push down and it's only very deep. And then we feel qualities. Like you mentioned, Glenn, uh, slippery, thready, choppy. Slippery pulse, the Chinese say, feels like you're trying to put your finger on a pearl in a porcelain wash basin. You can't get your finger right on it. It just slides around you. And that means that somebody has too much dampness in their system. The speed of the pulse speaks of hot or cold in the system. Not always very accurate, but the Chinese say in the classic medicine, a slow pulse means you're cold, and a fast pulse means you have heat trapped inside. It is sometimes true when you're feverish, your pulse is more rapid. But I've treated marathoners who were incredibly healthy who had a resting rate of forty-two, and they weren't cold. So you have to you have to you have to take that to who the person is as well. So pulse, tongue. So is, is that uh, is that enough on that for now, Glenn?
1: Uh, I think it is for now. I think you gave me a great idea for Western medicine. Uh, maybe okay. we should develop a clear tongue blade
2: <laughs> clear tongue I <laughs> trained doctors to look at the tongue You're right, exactly
1: well d- i i know that d- i've d- learned d- that because one of the things that i used to use it for when i would see somebody that for example i was thinking they were in congestive heart failure where there actually was increased fluids and there was many other signs but i would look at their tongue and i would see indentations of the teeth that had okay. their markings along the sides of the tongue, mm. which would give me an indication that there was even more congestion going on.
2: Right, mm-hmm. that often is congestion in the liver, gallbladder, because that that's vis- that's seen on the sides of the tongue. The tongue is also really useful for prognosis. If you treat, if somebody has a very thick, greasy, yellow coating on their tongue, you give them acupuncture and herbs, and by the third treatment, you can start seeing a pink tongue come through. You know they're getting better. I had a, and the Chinese say that also that there's a type of phlegm that you can't see. This phlegm clogs the holes of the heart and blocks the spirit. And it's a very odd thought, but I'd like to, I'll elaborate with something that you can put your finger on. I had a patient many years ago who was head injured on a peace march in India. He was hit by a bus. He was stabilized in India, brought to this country, kept alive a shunt put in, a metal plate in his head, and then sent home (coughs) with a a nasogastric tube in a coma, Mm -hmm. Completely, completely clenched. I was a friend of the family, and I, because I wanted to, went to his house every day to provide treatments. I wanted to see his tongue, but he was so clenched he wouldn't open his mouth. Finally, I was there, and he yawned for me, and I got to see it, and there wasn't a tongue to be seen. That coating was so thick, And sticky, you could not even see a tongue at all. Mm. tongue. Phlegm Mm. was blocking the holes of his heart. And in order to try to solve this, I needed to give him herbs as well as acupuncture to try to transform some of this phlegm. I consulted with an herbal master to get this formula. I hadn't, like you said, I hadn't been practicing long enough to be confident to do this one myself. So I asked for help. His medical doctor at the time... Wonderful man, who's unfortunately since passed away, named Henry Holderman. I called Henry and I said, "Can I have his wife, his mom cook up herbs?" He was 24 years old at the time. His mother cook up herbs, put him in his bag to send right into his stomach, and he said, "Give him anything you want." Oh, so, so we did this. My first treatment, the first thing I did to unclench his hands was a classic treatment. I took a tiny prismatic needle and I bled his fingertips took three drops of blood out of each finger. The next day, the physical therapist told me that for the first time since she'd seen him, he'd been able to open his hands right after he was bled. After one week of herbs, he yawned, and his tongue was beginning to be visible through his coating. Within one more week of acupuncture and herbs, I got a call from his mother, who I told the family, incidentally, I believe that people, if they're in a coma, even if they're not transmitting, they are receiving. And I said... Sit next to him, tell him where he is, tell him what happened all the time. Just sit there and talk to him. Mm-hmm. They were doing that. And so his, his mom, I got a message on my machine from his mother. She said uh, he, she went into his room, was adjusting his sheets and he was kind of jerking around and being a little fussy. He was no longer as clenched anymore. His now body was more relaxed. And she just said in casual passing, are you okay? And then she hears this whisper, I'm okay, come out of him. So um, he, I now still see this young man. He's now 42 years old. It's been 20 years. He can communicate fine in the here and now. Head, and, head and injuries are so fascinating. He remembers his life up to about age 14. Everything else is a blank, including what he had for breakfast. But if you want to have a here and now conversation with him, he's right there with you. He can walk with assistance, although he's in a wheelchair most of the time. Wow. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Beautiful I, story. I, I needed to mm-hmm. talk about
2: the coding on the tongue in that situation. It was so fascinating for me to see that.
1: Dan, mm-hmm. uh, I want to know how good you are. Uh, Christina, put your tongue up to the camera. <laughs> Let's <laughs> see what kind of a diagnosis we can make here. Just a preliminary.
0: I love it. You're so funny. You're so oh, so you?
2: here, so I don't know if I can get a good reading.
0: Where's, okay, I'm going to do this. Which camera am I? This one, no. Segovia?
2: Oh, it's, it's going to be like a Rolling Stones album. Oh, I okay. It looks like you have a somewhat puffy, purplish tongue with a white coating that's a little bit thicker than it could be. Okay, you can set your tongue back. So what like that? Like a lizard. Would, well, <laughs> that would that would suggest that you tend to run cold and your digestion is sometimes sluggish if you do the wrong things. That's about all I can say from looking at a pixelated picture.
0: <laughs> well, you're you're pretty spot on.
2: Was there some accuracy there? Good. Oh,
0: yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, and and definitely now it is a little puffy because it's uh it's it's a, my body's running a little hot right now actually. Running hot.
2: Oh, okay. In general, do you get cold easily though or do you or not?
0: Um not so much these days. No. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah, it's the pixelation. Yeah, I,
2: I might not have been a very accurate tongue. So.
0: <laughs> but it <laughs> is puffy. And the white coating, you know, I, uh, it's from my latte. <laughs> 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 it,
2: it could be, uh, people like to brush their tongue, yes. which, you know, that, that, mi- that gives, misses something. Another factor on tongue coating, if you haven't eaten a lot, the, act, the mechanical action of eating takes off the morning tongue coating. People always wake up with more of a coated tongue because your body has been the tongue the coating on the tongue is like the exhaust on a car that's whose carburetor isn't great it's a, it's it's so by the by you've been you've been metabolizing yourself overnight and it will show up with a slightly uglier tongue coating when you first wake up. Remember when I was a kid growing up and being Jewish and we were supposed to fast on Yom Kippur, and my grandma would have me stick out my tongue the next day to see if I'd fasted or not to tell if it if there was coating
1: on it.
0: Oh, that's so cool.
1: That might have been the real key as to why you went into traditional Asian medicine. That's
0: great.
2: Well, that was the, the other thing, too, is, of course, that, you know, never mind. I, I, don't, I don't want to tell a Jewish joke. Let's move on.
1: <laughs> I think that, you know, there's a, a great combination between the Jewish people and the Chinese people. So if you feel comfortable, go ahead. We can always edit it out. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, um, well, say it in Chinese then.
2: Well as as I was as I was considering becoming an acupuncturist rather than a musician actor and school teacher it would be something that my mother would appreciate even though I wasn't a real doctor as you say it was a form of being a doctor the joke is that when is when does a jewish fetus become viable <laughs> answer when it graduates from med school
0: oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you count? <laughs> it was uh, I, I, Oriental I, I, Medicine?
2: I, I, I count for me.
1: <laughs> he counts for me, too.
0: He, yeah. <laughs> made,
1: he made house calls at my house when I needed uh, healings and was very much a part of that. So it counts for me.
0: Okay, we're moving up to Santa Barbara now. <laughs> he makes house calls.
2: It's a beautiful place.
1: That's right.
2: I, I don't make too many house calls. I try to commute by bicycle, and it makes it not an easy thing to do. Oh,
1: goodness. We're coming up to the end of our uh, conversation, but there's a few things. One, I always ask uh, the healers that I speak with for a health tip, something that they have that uh, through their own wisdom and experience that they've learned over the years that they would like to share with someone. Do you have something that you would like to share with us?
2: Sure. If someone doesn't have the time, ability, or desire to either meditate or exercise, I'd like to give them a simple thing to do. It is to do proper diaphragmatic breathing very slowly while you stand on one leg. And then periodically switch legs. That's it.
0: Is that like, uh, that sounds very much like the tree pose in yoga.
2: Well, if you're not good at that or if your balance isn't good, you can even have your hand to grab something if you think you're going to fall. Standing on one leg is incredible. The proprioceptor cells in the muscles have to constantly be readjusting. You don't stand still, solid like a rock. You're always wiggly and moving. And it's communicating with your brain to keep you steady in space. It's doing an enormous amount of things. Mm. Hmm. the other leg you know you can lift up like a crane or leave near the i don't care what you do with the other foot but just standing on one leg while you breathe very slowly in your
1: abdomen
0: wow that's nice and simple we can have a lot of people do that Hmm.
1: i think i i like that it goes along with my metaphor breath Mm -hmm. Uh, so Mm -hmm. i i like that it very much is a health tip you know dan You've, you we've gone over so much but there's so much more to go over we never got to our uh actual treatments of things and comparisons and work with western medicine and how mm-hmm. acupuncture is today in the in the world i'm wondering if you would be willing to uh come on and do another hour with us
2: i've had a fabulous time and of course i'd be willing we
1: have Wonderful. to go to our executive for the final
0: i feel like you know the dowinger right now (laughs) oh we would love to have you back uh dad if you could on the on our next episode next week um we are truly honored and and there is just so much to to learn from you and you're so clear and concise with all that you share it's it's been such a pleasure thank you so much thank you very much
1: I would like to thank uh, my very special guest, uh, Dr. Dan Diamond, who has uh, shared his wisdom and expertise with us and is willing to give us a little more of that. I would like to thank all of my teachers and healers, of which Dan is (laughs) one of them. Uh, And I look forward to seeing all of you uh, next time in another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health.
0: Thank you Dan, thank you Glenn and, and we shall Thank
2: you. Thank you Christina, thank you Glenn.
0: We shall see you next week.